You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. So this morning we are going to be continuing our study in the gospel of John. Now, before we get into that, why don't you, uh, why don't you first tell someone beside you or across from you the title of my sermon this morning, The Bread of Life. The Bread of Life. Amen. Actually, before we get into that, remember that we have the You Feed Me initiative that we started a couple of weeks ago at the start of this month or so. Uh, please, 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 please ask the Lord how you can give and help out in this initiative. Again, remember, we are collecting canned goods, non-perishable items for the Mississauga Food Bank. And we are doing that in order to give back. As Remember, we, we read the story of, the, of Jesus feeding 5,000 and how he tells his disciples to, to feed them. That you do it. You take responsibility over your, the health and, and the, 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 the food of your neighbor. And so that's what we want to do as a church. We want to practice that together. Now with that said, as we get into our study of John chapter 6, we are getting to one of the most famous statements, one of the famous claims of Jesus Christ in all of his earthly ministry. And, and that is, of course, his declaration as being the bread of life. This is considered the first of the seven I am statements of Christ that we see throughout the Gospel of John. And, and it's interesting that it is, it, is, it, is, it is part of this bigger picture that, that John is trying to communicate about the character and nature of who Christ is. Remember, his purpose for his Gospel is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, but also that he is the Son of God. And so these I am statements of Christ that we'll be looking at as we study this gospel really declares a lot about who Jesus is. It says a lot about who Jesus is in his nature and his divinity. And, and as much as there have been other statements or other times where Jesus has used this I am phrase, for example, if you remember just a couple of weeks ago when Jesus walked on the water and he finally meets up with the disciples at the boat, Jesus says, uh, he says, I am, right? Or, or, or it is I in some translation. I am, ego I me, meaning I am, do not Fear. In addition to that, in John chapter 8, he, when, when, the, when the crowd were, was, was pushing against Jesus and, and accusing him of various things, of blasphemy specifically here, they were saying, how are you older? Why are you speaking like this? You're not older than Abraham. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. So, so there's a lot of instances throughout the Gospels where Jesus uses the statement, but these specific I am statements, these seven I am statements of Christ throughout the Gospel of John has a specific purpose. It reveals who he is. And and oftentimes it associates with one of the names that God gave to his people back in the Old Testament, as we'll even see this morning. Now, again, if you were reading this gospel from a sort of a first century Jewish perspective, you would connect the dots. You would see, hey, these I am statements that Jesus said, this, this really correlates with what God had said in the Old Testament as well. And especially in John chapter 6, if you remember, that's not me, right? Just double, double checking, right? I'm, I think the Lord's making sure that I'm awake this morning. Good. <laughs> uh, if you remember at the beginning of our study in John chapter 6, we saw how a lot of what happens in, in, in this chapter sort of compounds itself. There's, it's developing on top of scene, and I'm getting a mic. All right, Cool. All right, thank you. I'll just turn off this other one. Good. So 
For the first century Jewish person, the first century Jewish reader, as they're reading chapter 6, they're seeing all, all these parallels. They're seeing, uh, first of all, that it's a Passover, right? The whole scene takes place at the beginning of Passover, then Jesus feeding the, the 5,000 plus people, then Jesus walking in the water. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of parallels to what happened to the Israelites back in the Old Testament, back in Exodus, from, from the crossing of the Red Sea to getting manna from heaven. They, the Jews themselves in our passage bring up Moses for giving them food. And then Jesus says, hold on, no, it wasn't Moses who gave you that food. It was God. It was the Father who gave you this food. And so there's a lot of connections there already in chapter 6 about why Jesus is declaring himself as the bread of life. There's a great deal of purpose to it, as we'll see in a moment here. And as we unpack what it means, what this statement means what it means about Christ, specifically the bread of life, I hope that we are encouraged, that we would be reminded. That's, that's the goal for us this morning as you're listening to my voice, that we would be encouraged, that we would be reminded of who our Savior is. That in the midst of, 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 uh, of our own struggles and the midst of, of our own circumstances that we experience in our life. Because remember, these people, as much as they were looking for Christ, we, we talked about for the past couple of weeks how these, these people who, who came looking for Christ were, were very shallow believers, if not believers at all. And they were looking for Christ for very specific selfish uh, purposes that we discussed a few weeks ago, for whether it was material things. Whether it was they were looking for some sort of spectacle, whether they were looking for some sort of miracle as a sign to prove it to themselves that Jesus, who was Jesus, was who he, who he said he was, All, a lot of selfish things. But at the same time, this morning, I, I find that we can be in that similar space, so we can be in that similar context as these people, and this is why Jesus being the bread of life in our lives is more relevant. Is more is is encouraging to our needs as a believer as Christians today, and so my hope for us this morning, as we unpack this passage, is that we would be reminded who Christ is to us, not just for the unbeliever, but for us believers who have to go through the 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 the, the motions of life, the ups and downs of life, the the trials and circumstances of life. That's my hope is that for us who have put our faith in Christ, that we would remember the bread of life that we are feasting on as we walk in this life. So there's a lot to cover in our passage this morning as we are unpacking it. Uh, we're not going to be doing it verse by verse as we normally do uh, every week. We're just going to sort of highlight the main points, the main topics as, as we unpack what it means that, uh, for us that Jesus is the, the, the bread of life. Now, I encourage you to go back, to go back to John chapter 6 and read this over. This is one of the famous sermons of Christ himself, right? Everyone has heard of the Sermon on the Mount, but this one as well in John chapter 6 is the one that is famous and uh, you, should, you should unpack it on your own time as well. So with that said, let's get into it. Let's, let's uh, unpack our passage. Everyone say, everyone say, I'm hungry for the bread of life. Amen. I didn't want to. I don't. I didn't want to say. I was about to name my sermon this morning. Are you hungry? But I figured it was too close to lunch, and people would be distracted. So uh, uh, we'll just keep it as the bread of life. So what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Well, first and foremost, it points to his preexistence. 
Jesus being the bread of life points to his pre-existence. Over and over again, in our passage that we just read, and in the surrounding verses, Jesus says a very specific line. He says, I have come down from heaven. I have come down from heaven. Look at your Bible with me, verse 32 first. Verse 32. It says, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then in verse uh, 33, goes on to say, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Then jump down to verse 38. For I have come down from heaven. Then verse 50, he says, uh, this, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So Jesus is using very specific wording as he's talking, communicating to these people that he's talking to. Remember the context, by the way, right? These people came looking for Jesus in search for a miracle, for something physical, to be fed again. They heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000. They want to get more food, so they come and look out for Jesus. Of course, Jesus knows the heart of man already, and so he's, he knows that he's talking to a bunch of unbelievers. He's talking to a bunch of people who are just looking out for a spectacle, for something material. And so now Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the thing. He's trying to get to the heart of the matter, right? Because, again, these, these, these people have, have their sort of their Jewish heritage, their cultural and religious perspective in the mix, thinking that, hey, if you're the Messiah, then feed us. Show us a sign. Moses gave us bread from heaven. You know, our father is from heaven. Show us a sign. Do something. But Jesus is giving them something completely different. He's giving them a theological perspective, a theological foundation. He's saying, I am the bread that comes from heaven. Now, this is very specific because if you remember from John chapter 3, Jesus himself says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, this is an important implication as, as to how we understand and grasp what it means that he is the bread of life, right? Uh, the idea of him coming down from heaven, simply put, means that he existed before him being on earth. That he was in heaven before him talking to the people, him being born on this earth. This bread wasn't made on earth. That's a very specific distinction because in first century Judaism, their understanding or even the biblical understanding of, of a person or a person's soul, their mind, their heart, their emotions, all of that, their perspective is that, that all of that was created in the moment of conception. There was no idea of sort of this pre-soul existence that a lot of people like to uh, talk about these days. That's a lot of uh, new age fluff, right? Uh, in fact, there was, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a, uh, a Disney movie that came out just not too long ago, not too long ago called Soul. Anyone, anyone watch that? And then it was, it was this idea that there's a bunch of these little tiny souls somewhere in next weird world. And, 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 and when they're ready, then they jump down this hole and they become a human being, right? That's not in the Bible, all right? That's not how it works. The idea, the, the biblical perspective is, in fact, what we read in Psalm 139, what David's own word says. He says in Psalm 139, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the 
earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. The idea that our souls were in heaven waiting for us to be born, that doesn't exist in the Bible. Our soul is not eternal like God. Our soul, including our entire being, is a created thing similar to, uh, similar to everything else in this universe. It's also, why, it's also why abortion is such a horrific act, as a side note, right? Because at the moment of conception, God has already performed the miracle of life. He's already created an image bearer of himself. And the moment that you take that life away, you're murdering a person that God's created. And so this idea, all of that to say, the Jews were very much offended at this thought that Jesus was saying that he existed time before him being in this place, in this world. In fact, we even read about it, right? And look at verse 42 with me. After Jesus says all of these things, they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They're like, wait, don't we know, don't we know your parents? Right? I, I, I met with your mother last week. I, you're, you're, what are you saying that you're what, from heaven? Right? But the theological implications of this is that Jesus is speaking about his pre-existence. This is the incarnation. It's the son of God taking on human form, human flesh, right? By the way, you know, on Christmas, in Christmas, if, if, if you ever receive a bread, bread that's made out of fruit, this is why. Because it's supposed to represent Christ. Even though you might not like the bread because it's fruity, like who eats fruity bread? But this is why it represents Jesus. So if you're throwing it out, you're giving it to someone else, you're giving away Jesus. No, that's not true. But nonetheless, that's why people give out bread on Christmas because it represents the incarnation, the bread of life. Now, we've talked about this before because John has talked about this before throughout the, his gospel in chapter 1 and in chapter 5. He, he unpacks this already. Let's go back to John chapter 1 for a second here. John chapter 1 verse 4, it says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, this is talking about the pre-existence of Christ, meaning the, the incarnation. This is before, before time. Christ existed. He was there at creation. Nothing would have existed without Christ's hand in it. Now, this also talks about his coexistence with God, that, that Christ is not an, up, not an opposing God to God the Father, that he, that he is equal to God in power, in nature, and in authority. He is, he is part of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's a preexistence. It talks about his preexistence, his coexistence, and also his self-existence, meaning that he doesn't derive his source of life from anything else. He wasn't created. He was there at the beginning with God. Before there was a beginning. And all of this plays into Jesus being the bread of life. The, to, to his pre, again, it points to his pre-existence as the son of God. So, so now you might be sitting there, so what? All right? What's the application? So what? Why is Jesus pointing this out to these people? And, and why is it important to us this morning? Well, again, remember the context of these people who are looking after Christ, who are looking or pursuing Christ. They were demanding a sign. People were looking for them some sort of spectacle. They were comparing Jesus with Moses in that way. 
Again, in verse 31 of of John chapter 6, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So that's the context. And oftentimes, as we talked about in the past few weeks, we can be in a similar context wanting those things, material things, those, those signs and wonders just to prove who God is. So the first thing that we get from this and, and why this is so important, that Christ's preexistence to this understanding of him being the bread of life, is that it commands his respect. This is not some, just some ordinary miracle worker. This is not just some, some, some earthly teacher communicating these truths. This is God himself in human flesh having come down from eternity to share these truths, to communicate these truths, to to perform these miracles, these these signs to these people in our passage so that they might come to truly know uh, the legitimacy of his claims. This was God, the, the eternal God, infinite in power, if you remember in, 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 uh, in a previous verse, he says, God had put his seal on the Son of Man. Meaning, this is validated. This is, this, is, this is full authority. This is someone who is legitimately true. Christ was declaring that he was unlike anyone else. And therefore, you should heed his words. Now, in addition to that, we know the reason why that Jesus is declaring that he is the bread of life is, is for the sake of changing our perspective, changing the people's perspective and as, as well as our own perspective. Remember, these are people who are just craving something physical. They were hungry. They were, they were, they were looking for the temporary. Oftentimes we do the same. But what does Jesus say back in John chapter 6, verse 26? Just a couple of verses before. He says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For, him, for on him God the Father has set his seal. See, this is the purpose for, for us understanding that this is uh, 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 the bread that has, been, that, has, that has come down from heaven, that has existed before the earth, that has existed before our, our time. It's to curb our appetite from what is temporal to what is eternal. It is to get us to look beyond what is physical and material and what we need physically and to crave and to want and desire something that is true and spiritual and lasting and eternal. All of us being in the flesh, you know, Paul talks about in Galatians that the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other. And oftentimes, I think we're, we're, we're our focus, our mindset, even coming into church this morning, I'm sure it's, it's you know, did I eat this morning, right? Man, I, I wish I had a coffee. It's all physical. But the point of this, the purpose of Jesus presenting himself as a bread of life is to point us to the spiritual. It's to point us to something more, something beyond just our flesh, and to desire after what is spiritual. Uh, I love what I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that the truth? And there's no doubt in, in my mind that there are many of us in this room who have been looking for something to satisfy a need, a longing, a desire in our lives. But we've been looking the wrong places. And the point of, of Jesus being the bread of life that has come down from heaven is to point us to somewhere else to look for it. The answer is to look, to, to find the answer somewhere else other than in this world. 
to find the answers, the fulfillment, the satisfaction in him. So the question before we move on this morning, what are you craving for in this life and how are you satisfying it? What are you craving for in this life and how are you satisfying it? Right off the bat, if, it's, if your answer to this is something physical, I would push you, encourage you to look for something more. Because everything physical, everything material in this life is just temporal. There's something more. There is, there's something greater. There's a greater satisfaction that Jesus offers that we can find in him. So the point of, of him being the bread of life is to point to his pre-existence, to his pre-existence. Let's move on here. What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Well, secondly, it presents his purpose. It presents his purpose. Look at verse 37 with me. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise it up on the last day. Go to verse 44. Jesus says a similar thing here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you notice the I will statements there? Or even just to talk about will. Jesus, a couple of times in those, in the, just in those few verses, says, I will do this. This is the will of the Father that I do this. And I will raise him up on the last day. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is talking about the plans and the purposes that God has. That he works through his son, Jesus Christ. It presents his purpose. Again, he's the bread that's coming down from heaven to accomplish the Father's will. Now, this is, I think it's important to talk at this point about two sort of theological terms, the decorative will of God and the preceptive will of God. Because oftentimes when we think about it in our own personal life, like what's, God, what's your will? We ask this oftentimes. Or God, what's the will for my life? Should I, should I take up this job? Or is it your will that I, I, I marry this person? Or is it your will that I do this or I do that and make these decisions? And so I think it's important that we have to have a good theological foundation of what we're talking about when we ask God's will. There's a sense that there, there are two, well, technically three. There's the decorative will of God, the preceptive will, and there's also the, permiss- the permissive will of God in theological terms. So let's just review this a little bit. The decorative will of God, that's sort of coming from the word decree, as in a decree, God's decorative will is oftentimes called the sovereign will of God, the, the, the efficacious will of God. This is when, when God declares something and it, the, only thing for it, the only thing to happen is for that thing to come to pass. For example, when God said in the beginning of the world, let there be light, the light could have been like, well, I don't know, I'll think about it, right? No, God said, let there be light and there was light. That is the decorative will of God. There is no other possible outcome. When God decrees something, it will happen. What we also see in Scripture is the preceptive will of God, and it contrasts the decorative, the decorative will of God in the sense that it, 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 it is connected to the revealed commands of God, the published law, so to speak, of God. For example, if God says, uh, do not murder, 
to humanity, it doesn't mean that humanity will no longer murder. There's still a potential for humanity to disobey. That's still the preceptive will of God. God desires for something to, to happen or to not happen, but at the same time, humanity in its sinfulness and in, in our choices still have the, the option to, to, to disobey and wander from that, 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 that perceptive will of God. Now, that perceptive will of God is still or falls under the sovereign will of God or the decorative will of God because, again, we know that God works everything out for, uh, for His glory and our good, right? Even though, you know, what, what man intended for evil, God works out for, uh, for good, and so those are two, those are two wills that, that are mentioned in the Bible. Now, the good question is, and hopefully you've been paying attention throughout, throughout that entire rambling, in that passage that we read, is that the decorative will of God or the preceptive will of God? In the passage that we just read concerning the purpose of Christ, is that the decorative will of God or the preceptive will of God? Let's make this a little interaction, all right? How many of you think it's the preceptive will of God? Okay, all right, interesting. And how many of you think it's the decorative will of God? All right, some people were listening and not sleeping. The right answer is that it's the decorative will of God. Let's look at that passage again, right, in verse uh, 37 of our text. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the first will statement. That's the decorative will of God. They will come to him. There's no option there. Right? There's no like, well, you know, if you invited me, I'll think about it. Right? It's not like when your friend texts you to come out and hang out. It's like, well, okay, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll see. It goes on to say, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That it goes back to Jesus' purpose, right? I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of whom who sent me, that I should not lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him on the last day. Decorative or perceptive? Everyone together? Decorative will. Two things happening there. One, it says that all who look, the Father's will is that all who look at Christ will be saved. Christ's will is that everyone that the Father has given me, I will save. I will bring to eternal life. That is a sure truth. It's not a possibility. It's not a, it's not a well, we'll see at the end of the day if the, 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 the scales balance out kind of thing. It's the decorative will of God. It's a sovereign will of God to save those who he is calling to himself, those he is drawing to himself, those who, who looks upon Christ and believes that is the will of God to save him. There's no backing out there. There's no, and this is why we talk about this before about you know, monergism and how it's God's salvific work to save his, his elect, his people. Because it's not up to us. It's not up to our disobedience or our obedience. It's not up to our, to our, 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 our desire of whether or not we want to pursue God or not pursue God. God in his sovereignty enacts his will. He draws sinners towards himself. He replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh to cause us to walk in his precepts, to cause us to walk in his will, to desire and to long after him. 
We always get this picture that, oh man, you know, monergism, it means that people are being, you know, dragged, kicking and screaming to God, right? Like, no, I don't want to go to God. I don't want to experience his goodness and his blessings and forgiveness and have eternal life. Who says that, right? Who says that? The reality is, when God does the regenerative work in our hearts, we can't help but long and desire after God. We can't help but, but run to him. And our assurance in all of the, and this is where it all ties together for us practically, is that our salvation is secure in Christ. Because not only does the Father will that whoever looks at him, whoever looks on him and believes in him will be saved, but Christ himself personally handles our salvation. He's the one who's taking us from one end of glory to the next. Similar to how he was Christ, remember, at the feeding of 5,000, it says in John's gospel at the very least that he was the one who's personally distributing the bread and the fish to the people. It's Jesus, Jesus himself personally distributing salvation to those who the Father has drawn to him. You know, uh, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, just to back up this claim. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God himself. God himself has secured your salvation. God himself is guarding and protecting your salvation. I'll say this very plainly and clearly. If you are in Christ, if the Holy Spirit has, has, has done a regenerative work in your heart and you have put your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the grave, listen, your salvation is secure for all eternity. You cannot lose your salvation, period. You cannot. But what if I continue in my sin? What if I, if I, if I you know, can continue to mess up and struggle in my sin? The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, foreseeing that you would continue in your sin, chose to die for you nonetheless to demonstrate his love for you. To demonstrate his love for you. You know, it's interesting because we have, we have a lot of young adults here, right? Plus I've started with a bunch of, uh, I always say Bible nerds in the basement. And now we're growing older and these nerds have been able to get wives, right? <laughs> like, whoa, a miracle indeed. Um, and so now we're, we're, we're married and starting these families, but it's, it's like more people this, this year, there's more people getting married. There's like three weddings already coming up, more next year. Amen to that. But it's interesting, <laughs> our brother uh, Deacon Jeeve isn't here this morning, but he always tells me how uh, he's, repair, he's, he's preparing his home for, or, for his, uh, when him and Esther get married, and, and you know, they're, they're, they're just finishing up the renovations there, and he's always telling me how he's preparing a home for his wife. And that's a very biblical perspective, because in Jewish customs, when uh, when a groom and a, and a bride, they get betrothed, they would separate for a few months, maybe even a couple of years, because the groom would go and prepare a home for the wife. 
We'd make sure that, that the, the wife has a home to go to, a, a home that is secure, that has a roof, that has a, a working door, right? That has a, all of the necessities of, of their wife coming over to live in that home. He goes and secures a place for her. Now, it's interesting because towards the end of the Gospel of John, and when he's talking to his disciples, Jesus says the very same thing to his disciples. He says, in my father's house, John chapter 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And, there, and where I am, you may also be. Now, the disciples hearing this would have known these are exact words that a groom would say to his bride. Because these are the exact words that Jesus promises to his bride, the church. That he has gone before us to go and prepare a place for us. Out of his great love for us, that he's gone and secured that place. And as a faithful bridegroom, he will one day return and bring us home with him. No one's going to say amen to that? Fine, that's okay, that's fine. So again, the application for us is very simple. If you are a believer in Christ, your salvation is secure. Your salvation is secure in the eternal God, the one who pre-existed, the one who coexists with God, the one who self-existed, where our source of life is found. Your salvation is secure in Christ. You know, if, the, if, if, if that whole illustration wasn't good enough, uh, in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of the Savior, you know that Jesus prays for you. Jesus prayed for you. If you are in Christ today, Jesus says, I, I'm not only praying for these that you have given me, but those who will believe that they will be with me, that they will be one with me as well. Jesus prayed for you. If that doesn't give you any security, if that doesn't give you any hope in this life, that Christ has taken care of, of your eternity, of the life to come. Listen, your salvation in Christ is more sure than the sun rising tomorrow. That's the reality of it. Jesus is the bread of life because it presents his purpose. That he has come to save those whom the Father has given him. Those who have abided in him. It presents his purpose. Now, coming up to last point here. What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Well, lastly, it proclaims his provision proclaims his provision. It says in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 50, it says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Of course, again, there's parallels in this chapter and what happened in the Old Testament. The Jews themselves brought it up. They got manna from heaven. What's interesting about Jesus being the bread of life, it correlates with one of, one of God's Old Testament names, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. 
what's interesting is that name of God, the Lord, uh, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Yare, in some translations, it was first mentioned in the scene with Abraham and Isaac. When God asked Abraham to offer up his son Isaac, and instead of offering up Isaac, God provided a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. The Lord, our provider. And that's exactly what's happening in this. In text. We'll see it next week, but that's, this is the famous passage that is often misquoted and often taken out of context. And, and in some church traditions have really taken it literally where Jesus says, in order to be a part of me, in order to, to follow me, you need to partake of my flesh and drink my blood. But all of that, and we'll look at that next week, is, is just a symbolism of how God has provided for his people, the salvation of his people, all in his sovereignty. Look at it with me in verse, uh, verse 44. Because we are speaking about God's sovereignty and we've touched, about the, touched on this a couple of weeks now. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is talking about how, how this bread this bread of life that the, father's, that the Father has sent down from heaven is, is only for those who he is drawing to himself. No one can come to the Father unless they are drawn to him. That's God's sovereignty. And I know that leaves us with a lot of like, well, okay, if I'm not being drawn to God, then how am I to experience Christ? How am I to believe in Christ? And there's a lot of questions to unpack there. What's interesting in our passage is that it also shows human responsibility. Human responsibility harmonized with God's sovereignty. Because in addition to God sending the bread of life, we also see that Jesus says three things. Three things in terms of how to respond to God sending his son. First in verse 35, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me. Whoever comes to me. So first of all, in order to receive the bread of life, you need to come to Christ. Come to Christ, meaning to approach him, meaning to turn to him, meaning not to go and look elsewhere for salvation or help or satisfaction. It must be to Christ. Whoever comes to him specifically. Secondly, in verse 40, it says, For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son who looks on the sun. So you have to come to him. You have to also look to him to see, to understand, to perceive who he is, to look carefully. This is, again, why John is making this entire argument in his gospel for us to believe that Jesus is the Christ as, as well, that he is the son of God. We are to come to see who Jesus truly is, that he's not just some miracle worker or some good moral teacher, but that he is, in fact, the Christ. And the Son of God, you must see, you must look to him, carefully see and observe who Jesus is. Then finally, in that same verse, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You must believe. 
You must put wholeheartedly your, your, your trust and your faith and your hopes on Jesus Christ to believe. And we'll see this next, next week as we unpack the, the, the coming verses. But that's what Jesus means when we are to take part of his flesh, to drink of his blood, is to believe, it's to consume, it's to digest. It's not just taking it, it's not just looking at it, it's not just coming to him, but actually absorbing it, actually believing it into yourself. That's a provision of bread. That Jesus is the bread of life to all of those who come, to all who those all, to all who look and believe in Him. As we close, that's the invitation for us this morning. Listen, just keeping sort of in this line of of thinking of Jesus being the bread. No one can eat the no one can eat food for you, right? You, you might go out together to get lunch or dinner, but at the end of the day, only you can feed yourself. Only you can eat and partake of the food. And unless you really know that you're hungry, you might not even want to eat the food, right? This is, again, the purpose of why Jesus is communicating and giving all these truths to these people who are following after him. These people did not know that they were hungry. These people did not know that they needed something more than something physical. They needed a spiritual solution to the cravings, to the desires that they had in the flesh. And the invitation for us this morning, if we are, if we have yet to put our faith, put our to, to come to Christ, to look at him and believe in him, the invitation this morning is to first realize that you need him. You need this bread of life. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been turning to so many other things, trying to satisfy your deep longings, trying to satisfy the cravings of your flesh. The reality is the only place that you can satisfy those things is in Jesus Christ. And so I invite you, if you have yet to do that, to put your faith in him, to come to him, to look to him, to believe that he is sufficient, to desire after him. Again, no one can eat the bread of life for you. Your parents can't eat the bread of life for you. They can't believe in Christ for you. You have to do it yourself. So that's the invitation. Let's, let's pray this morning. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you, O oh God, first and foremost, for your word that has gone forth. We know it has not returned void. It has gone forth in a, to accomplish your purpose. But at this time, Lord, I pray for the heart that has yet to put their faith and trust in you. Who is still like the many people in, in, in John chapter 6 who are just still looking for something superficial or physical or some sort of spectacle or some miracle. I pray for those hearts in the room, Lord, that have yet to put their faith in you.
to partake of this bread of life, to partake of Christ. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that Holy Spirit, that you'd work your regenerative work in their hearts this morning, that you'd make their, that you'd replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and that they would be sensitive to you, to you, and to the pull as you draw them, Father. I pray that they would come, they would see you, and that they would believe. I pray for us, God, who, who are already believers, who have already partaken of this bread of life, and only you can provide. The Lord, you would give us the joy of our salvation. That God, you would remind us, so oh Lord, what, what you have truly given to us through your Son. Security, satisfaction, hope. Hope that this world is not the end. That your promises of a home with you is secured in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray for the brother or the sister who have been struggling through seasons of trials, hardships and discouragement. God, it's in the sacred moment that you'd remind them. You remind them, oh God, of what you have provided through your son, Jesus Christ. That they have a hope more secure and anything that we can put or trust or else find in this world that they have a savior who has gone forth and prepared a place for them who is the author and perfecter of their faith I pray father that in the storms of this life and the trials that we experience and difficult circumstances that we would cling to you our eternal hope our living hope and find security in you find forgiveness in you find love in you oh Lord help us we know how 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 far our hearts have wandered and how we often turn to other things. But I pray in the sacred moment that you draw your children, draw your people back to you, oh God. And you alone, Lord Jesus, you alone would be glorified in this place and in our hearts, oh God. We pray these things in Jesus, your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.